Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today with Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. Lots to talk about with the mayor. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Brad, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Let's let's start first with an update on the school that burned down in Port Coquitlam, Hazel Trembath Elementary School. I know this is a, a personal one to you and your family. Let's listen quickly to this report, Global News, and I'll get your thoughts on it. I hopped in my car and came right away because I realized all the teachers were together, the principals here, the entire community is here. It's one of the best communities I've ever been a part of. This is what's left of classrooms, hallways, a gymnasium, even an on-site childcare. As a teacher, my heart hurts for all the teachers. All your life <coughs> is in your classroom, and that is all gone. Okay, Mayor West, what is the latest on this? I know, you're, is it your son that was that went to that school? Is that right? That's right, Mike. Uh, well, actually, I went to that school, if you oh. can believe it. I went to uh, Hazel Trumbath Elementary growing up here in Poco, and uh, my son is a grade one student there. Yeah. What is the latest on this now? Because the kids are what? They're moving into a temporary building, right? That's right. So today actually is the first day for uh, about 250 students from Hazel Trumbath who are uh, moving over to Winslow, which is a school district uh, building in Coquitlam. So uh, about 85% of the students are are taking the bus there. And, um, you know, it's it has actually been uh, just amazing the way in in a week and under a week, really, uh, people have been uh, working day and night uh, to get that building ready uh, and try and make it as much of, of an elementary school as it possibly could be. And so there's been just so much work that's happened. Um, as I said, people have been pouring their heart and soul into it. I went to a, a meeting with a bunch of parents the other day and was able to see some of the pictures of the classrooms. And, you know, teachers have been in there, have been trying to recreate their classrooms and, you know, just trying to bring as much comfort as they can to our kids. So yeah. it's been an incredibly difficult situation for us in Port Coquitlam. Um, some really challenging conversations, you know, my, my son is six years old. And so you can imagine, you know, wondering why his school burnt down and, and what did you say? Uh, what do you tell him when he asked that? Well, I, I tell him the truth, which is that, you know, we, we don't know yet um, yeah. that uh, there's an investigation going on, uh, that there is a, a police and, and fire uh, uh coming uh, you know doing their investigation um yeah. and you know, and they'll tell us when they have the answers but you know during you know such a tragic and and tough time i think one of the the lessons or the silver linings here is the way the community has rallied and um you know that really is in the dna of Port Coquitlam. and i i could not be more proud of this community the way you know complete strangers have uh, just opened up their hearts uh, and have been, there's just been an outpouring of generosity and kindness. Um, the city has been taking donations from people. I mean, we've got so many donations, we could probably outfit Hazel Trembath five times over. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things where there, there's always going to be tough times in life and there's going to be tragedies and heartbreak. And as a parent, you try your best to you know, to, to, to save your children from that. But 
you know, you're, you're never going to be able to, it's always going to be, it's always going to be there at some point in life. Yeah. And so, you know, you try and find these lessons that you can, uh, that you can learn from these moments. And I think in, in this case, it's been the way the community has rallied and the fact that people are supporting one another and looking out for each other. So okay, uh, it's been a difficult situation, Mike, but uh, we are rallying and, you know, Hazel Trambath is going to come back. We're going to get that school rebuilt and uh, get the kids where they belong. Okay, hopefully they get to the bottom of it. That's a very suspicious looking fire just breaking out in the middle of the night and the whole place just burns to the ground so quickly. So hopefully they get some answers there. Well, and just quickly, Mike, and I can tell you, like I'm in regular contact with the RCMP about this. Um, They have uh, uh, a very significant team um, undertaking the investigation. Um, They're reviewing, you know, hundreds of hours of surveillance footage. A lot of people have cameras on their homes now. This was a residential neighborhood. So they're reviewing hundreds of hours of of security footage. Uh, They're interviewing, you know, over 100 witnesses. I'm told that they've got the best fire investigator in the entire country on scene. Um, And so they're working through their their process. And, um, you know, I know they'll share an update when they're able to. Let's talk about another issue in the community here, and this is the the battle over this 65-space daycare that was rejected at a Port Coquitlam Council meeting recently. This is on Grant Avenue in Poco, and let's listen to this report. You'll hear a Global News reporter, Travis Travis Prasad here, also Port Coquitlam City Councilor Daryl Penner. Let's listen. In a Port Coquitlam neighborhood, there's a proposal to knock this house down and replace it with a two-story daycare. Enough space for a combined 65 infants and preschoolers. After passing the first and second reading with unanimous support, City Council rejected the Grant Avenue daycare application at the third reading earlier this month. The most fundamental point for for myself uh, looking at this is the streetscape itself. Uh, There are no sidewalks. Mayor Brad West, do you want to take a second look at this project, correct? Yeah, I've um, used the authority that's afforded to me in the community charter uh, to put this matter uh, in front of council for reconsideration, which will happen tomorrow. Um, Unfortunately, I wasn't present uh, during the the third reading vote. uh, And as was noted there previously, it's been supported by council unanimously. You know, there's no doubt that council heard from um, some neighbors who, who had concerns. But I think the step that was missed here is that um, there was no opportunity afforded to both the applicant and to city staff to uh, address and respond to you know the legitimate concerns because there were some concerns that were expressed that quite frankly were absurd and council should put what like the bear attacks. Well, yeah, like, you know, they said, just they said this, like, they well, said that this the was like in, in bear to in bear country around Poco and these kids could get what attacked by bears when they're on their way to daycare. Are you kidding yeah, me? I think there was someone who was really reaching in their opposition <laughs> and said, well, you know, uh, I'd be really concerned if these kids were out for a walk and then, you know, came in, encountered a bear and, you know, got eaten. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's just like. I don't know, Mike, you, well, you think that you've heard it all and then uh, and then yeah. you hear some little out there. So but look, um, so those, you know, the, the things like that and saying, oh, well, my property value is going to drop. Like there, there's no you know, that's there's no basis in reality. Well, to what, that. Ab- what about those concerns from the neighbors, though? Because we're talking about like a two story daycare, 65 kids on a on a residential street, no sidewalks, as you heard in that clip. 
I mean, if you lived across the street from it or next door to it, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be reasonable? You'd be like, wait a second here. Hang on. Well, I, I do I need this in my neighborhood? Go ahead. Well, we do. Well, actually, we do need them in in the yeah. neighborhood. There's yeah. a huge need for for childcare. I, you know, I hear from parents all the time. I've experienced firsthand myself waiting on a a wait list for years to be able to get a spot. Uh, so there's a, there is an urgent need for uh, daycare spots. There's no question. And um, in fact, in my neighborhood, we do have residential based uh, daycares, uh, a number of them. And I think the concerns, you know, that uh, around the idea that, well, look, everyone's going to drop off their kid at the same time and it's going to be pandemonium on the street. Uh, that has just not happened anywhere sure. that we have. Uh, daycares in the community because what happens is parents drop off at different times you know I dropped off my my youngest son at daycare this morning uh, just after 8 a.m um, and there was me and one other parent who was yeah. dropping off uh, their, their kid because you know again people stagger some not everyone drives to the daycare some people live in the neighborhood they walk the, their their kid over so you know, if you conjure up the worst case scenario and say, well, this is what's going to happen, then then, yeah, <clears throat> maybe you want to, you know, okay. you, you have some uh, reason there. But my experience and I think the reality of how it's played out in our community is and other communities is it's not the worst case scenario. OK, uh, people Mayor, you know, are reasonable about it. Where do you stand, Mayor West, on this densification drive that we're seeing from? The province. Let's densify these single-family zone neighborhoods. Put up fourplexes, sixplexes on some of these lots. What do you think of that idea? Well, I think there is densification that uh, can and should happen, and is happening in many communities, including Port Coquitlam. Um, but it also has to be well considered, and it has to be part of a plan. Um, one of the things I find frustrating about this entire dialogue is it's like, all right, we'll just uh, throw up you know, throw up this housing without any consideration of the significant uh, servicing requirements that come with it. You know, um, when you, I just think of a couple of developments in, in Port Coquitlam, you know, where we've um, seen significant density. I mean, there has to be major upgrades to utilities so people can do things like flush their toilet, Mike, uh, you know, turn on, turn on the tap and get drinking water. Uh, it's not as simple as just saying, you know, snap your fingers and, and you know, and housing appears um, and that's it. And so, you know, when the provincial and federal government um, make this push, I mean, that that's fine. Like, I agreed, you know, we need to have more housing, um, but it has to be part of a plan. It has to include uh, support for the you know, the, the real hard uh, costs that come with it in terms of utility upgrades. And then there's all the other infrastructure that's required when you add people. You know, you don't just throw people in the city and they have no needs. They want to be able to go to parks. You need to have playgrounds. You need to have uh, one of the ones that often flies under the radar, especially when you get multifamily units. Um, they need place, off-leash dog parks, places to take their dog. I mean, that becomes a, a big thing. Um, you know, and that's not even beginning to touch on pools and community centers and rec centers. So all of those things cost a, a heck of a lot of money. Uh, yeah. And the burden for them is going to fall entirely on our local taxpayers and on property tax, which is already a significant cost to people if the provincial and federal government 
don't step up in a more meaningful well, way to address some of these infrastructure costs. I, I remember I remember speaking recently to Premier David Eby, and I put some of these points to him. Uh, one was Carmageddon. Could there be parking chaos on some of these streets if you densify this rapidly? And he said, look, we can't, we can't sit here around here wringing our hands worrying about parking. We've got a housing crisis. We've got to start building stuff. Like what? What would you say to that? This sort of move to like we got to get these homes built quickly, Be- because you know when you listen to a guy like Pierre Paglia, for example, right, the federal conservative leader, he keeps talking about these municipal gatekeepers who are saying no to housing densification. Like, wh- are you? Do you feel like you're a gatekeeper on this, or how would you? What would you think? We just got two minutes left here. No, I, I don't think so because we've approved you know so many projects i mean there there's there's i can't even count on one hand you know a project for housing that's been you know rejected in this community we've approved just about every one and port coquitlam has grown significantly over the last several decades here's you know what none of these politicians want to admit this whole issue around the complete detachment of our housing market from local economic realities has happened for a number of reasons, and it's taken us probably about 20 or 30 years to get there. And the idea that, you know, you're going to be able to wave a magic wand and undo it just by, you know, telling municipalities to build more. Municipalities don't even build housing. Municipalities, you know, approve land use. And then it's the market that builds housing, and that's informed by interest rates, availability of construction workers. I mean, I I hear about that all the time. Uh, So, you know, there's this there's all this this kind of gimmicky stuff, Mike. They keep throwing out these gimmicks. Well, I'm going to, you know, you know, a housing accelerator fund. And it's just it's like it's not really, I think, getting to the, the heart of of any of it. It's just, you know, trying to be seen by the electorate to do something and point the finger at others. Okay, always appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. Right, let's talk about the crackdown on Airbnb now. Well, this was a long time coming. The government had been threatening this for quite some time. We finally see the details of it here now. So Airbnb operators would only be allowed to rent out a single residence, their their primary residence, right? Lots of stories out there about condo buildings that have been basically operating like hotels. Government saying they want to put a, a stop to that, free up these Airbnb units so British Columbia residents can rent them and live in them long term. Now, here's the question. Is this going too far? Is this government overreach here? Will it really solve anything? Got Maria Recruit standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to David Eby here. So here is the Premier announcing this crackdown and why the government's doing it. Have a listen. Without question, uh, in British Columbia, short-term rentals have gotten out of control. Uh, We have a situation uh, in our province where uh, the top 10% of hosts account for 50% of the income for short-term rental operators. All right, let's discuss it now with my guest, Maria Recruit. Maria is the president of the Canadian Short-Term Rental Association. She is a real estate investor, author of the book, Double Your Income, Using Social Media. Maria, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, it's right. It's great to have you because I really wanted to get sort of an opinion on someone who's been on the investment side of this as an Airbnb operator. Can you tell me your thoughts on this? Like British Columbia, not alone here, right? Other jurisdictions have been doing this sort of crackdown on short-term rentals, correct? Oh yes, it's been going on for years, but people aren't aware of it. Yeah. I, I, um, I've been part of a number of advocacy groups, uh, such as um, AVROA, which was the Association of Vacation Rental Operators and Affiliates, AVROA, and I was the advocacy chair for that. I've been fighting short-term rental um, decisions that would stop people from making money from their short-term rentals here in the Niagara region uh, mm-hmm. for years. Yeah. Uh, so now it's, you know, it's coming to the, to the limelight where people are seeing this, but this has been an ongoing fight in many jurisdictions. And in fact, years ago, like I, I've been in the short-term rental business, short, medium, and long. So I'm a real estate investor and landlord. I've been, I've been in the business for 23 years. And I've seen so many changes happening, which is unfortunate, uh, hasn't been good for anyone who's in the short-term rental sphere. And in fact, I saw it as a trap that people were walking right into. So many people in Toronto bought condos thinking there wasn't going to be any problems with them running short-term rental businesses. And then the government it all comes down and just stops them in their path. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's so, it's so unfair, Mike. Mm. Let's listen to David Eby here and I'll get your thoughts, Maria. So here's the BC premier here explaining uh, the major part of the rules here, the cr- part of the crackdown here in BC. Then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Eby. If you live in a city with 10,000 people or more, there will be a provincial legal requirement that you not operate a short-term rental unless it is part of your principal residence, either a secondary suite or a laneway home. Okay, so only your principal residence would be allowed to be rented out short-term. Now, this only applies to cities with a population over 10,000, but the government here, Maria, is saying that this is going to put a lot of Airbnb operators out of business, and they, they say, look, look, this is a good thing. We want to free up these these suites for people to actually live in long term. What do you think about what the government's doing here in BC? It's wrong. It's wrong anywhere in the world. Because the only reason people have gone into short term rentals is because of the laws that are governing the long term rentals. So people are able to stay in a long term rental, even short term, it's happened to Airbnb properties, uh, and they can't evict them change the laws, then people will go back to long-term rentals. So this was this is a knee-jerk reaction on the landlords that they thought, oh my God, now I'm able to be able to make money. I don't have to worry about people uh, overstaying. They will pay a higher price. I can pay my mortgages, especially now with the interest rates going up, they really need to be able to run Airbnbs or short-term rentals. Now, if I can just suggest something, uh, mm. the fact that the government is saying that you can only run your own property. So I've had a bed and breakfast and I've had a short-term rentals. So you know, I've had both. Uh, so if, if they're saying that it can only be in your principal residence, then what you become basically is a, a bed and breakfast. Yeah. So then the laws are a little bit different for that. Here we get, um, you get a license to run a bed and breakfast and the owner is on the property to make sure things don't go up line. I think what's happened too here, uh, Mike, is that many, many Airbnb guests have made noise, have destroyed properties. Like it's, you know, like 
when I started 23 years ago, we didn't have these problems with people destroying anybody's property. But now you see people overstaying, not wanting to pay, destroying, mm. um, you know, and, and, and deciding, no, I'm going to stay forever. See if you can evict me, you know. So there's right. a major reaction on both sides. Speaking you know, to Maria, Maria Recruit, Maria is the president, Canadian Short-Term Rental Association, talking about the crackdown on Airbnb. And it's an interesting contrast you're painting there between being a landlord for a, a long-term tenant versus mm-hmm. the attraction of running an Airbnb in, proper, in your property in, instead. And we heard, we, we've been told here in BC that there's been an explosion. There's been a huge growth in Airbnb here in British Columbia over the past year or two. Do you think that is because, like I've heard from a lot of people who say, look, the the rules on landlords in British Columbia, and I suspect it's happened in other provinces too, have become so restrictive, it is so difficult to evict a problem tenant that why would I do this? Like, why why not rent my place out on Airbnb instead and I don't have these problems. Do you think that's why there's been such a big growth in it? Oh, One I know so. Yeah. I know so. <laughs> I predicted that years ago that that was going to happen as a direct result of these laws that don't protect the long-term landlord. And basically, the long-term ran- landlord is being dictated by a tenant that doesn't want to pay. Now, who can who can survive without paying their mortgage or, or their utilities? No one can. But the government is not on the side of the landlord. And I've been fighting the government. I mean, even over here, myself, I've made deputations at council meetings talking about this. You know, like I've been doing this for 23 years. Uh, They don't want to listen, Mike. They don't want to listen. Okay. What do you say, though? I mean, we got a housing crisis here. And... It's very, we have a very, very low vacancy rate for places that are available to rate in Vancouver. You are paying astronomical rents, the highest in Canada. It's, it's a big problem. You can't afford to buy a place. Forget about that. That is off the table for so many people. But for a lot of people, even finding a decent, affordable place to rent is extremely difficult. So this is why governments here and elsewhere are saying, look, we've got to crack down on these short-term rentals. We need to free up rental properties for people who actually live here permanently. They're actual residents here, never mind tourists or short-term visitors. What do you say to that argument? I mean, isn't that a legit argument? It's a legit argument, but what, what about the government building more affordable housing? I mean, if the government was to protect the landlord that someone couldn't overstay and not pay their rent and not destroy the property, that the landlords would stay in business with long-term rentals because there's less work to be done with long-term rentals. I know that myself, I do all all short, medium and long. So certainly having a long-term, a really good long-term tenant is a joy if you have the right person in the right property. And I think a lot of times the landlords aren't choosing the right person to go into their property. If they, you know, if you did that and, yeah. and the government did their share, then you wouldn't have the, the problem of everyone going into short-term rentals. It's almost like, oh my God, you know, this is my last resort. This is where I can make some sort of money with my property because I'm afraid of getting the wrong person in my property. 
Yeah. Maria, last question for you. Do you think this will solve anything? Because I actually heard from people who are saying, well, okay, the government's doing this. Maybe it has a lot of support, but will it actually solve this housing crisis? Because there are bigger challenges for getting affordable rentals built in this province and in the whole country. There's rising interest rates. There are labor shortages for construction workers to get stuff built. The price of building materials has gone through the roof as well. Do you think this will solve anything? No, actually the opposite. <laughs> what oh, I wow. predicted, people, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you because I've been in this for 23 years. What's going to happen are these landlords, these people who own Airbnbs are going to start selling and they're going to sell it to anybody, you know, any type of investor. And what's happening in Canada and the USA and all over the world is that you're going to have these big landlords coming into the area. These um, the, uh, investment groups. Yeah. They will come in and gobble up these properties at a discount, say that they're going to make them affordable, which they won't. We'll take them over, leave them empty like they have in the United States, and then they're going to raise the rate again. If you think it's high now, just wait until they come in and they, they will be able to get around the law. Unfortunately, the small landlord is not allowed to get around the law, but these big investment firms, I'm telling you, they're going to get around the law. I mean, uh, BlackRock moved into Toronto, I think mm. in 2022, 2021. Uh, and I thought, okay, here they are. They're going to be gobbling up the small landlords. That's what's going to happen. This is why okay. this is happening. Maria, thank you for your time and your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. All right, here we go now with our great fossil fuels debate. In the era of climate change, is it time to wind down Canada's production of oil and gas? Now, that would include natural gas in B.C. here. We're spending billions on pipelines and production here. And, man, you talk about a huge political fight in Canada over this now. Of course, the Justin Trudeau government promising to increase the federal carbon tax drive down demand for fossil fuels, limit production in places like the Alberta oil sands. What a stark difference with Pierre Polyev, the leader of the federal conservative party. He is promising to scrap the carbon tax. He wants to expand oil and gas production in Canada. Got an awesome panel standing by to discuss this. Let's have a listen to Polyev here first. Here he is speaking in British Columbia last week about oil and gas production in Canada. Listen to this. Carbon capture and storage so that our oil and gas sector can put the carbon back in the ground where it came from and we can become the lowest emitting source of oil anywhere on planet Earth. Oil, by the way, will be used roughly 60 to 100 million barrels a day for the next two decades if you believe the International Energy Agency. So we think it should be low emitting Canadian oil to bring home that money to Canada. Okay, 100 million barrels of oil demand for the next 20 years, he says. And Canada wants to get in on that. Let's discuss it with our panel now. i got Peter McCartney on the line, climate campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Hey, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for being here. Cody Battershill on the line. Cody is the founder of Canada Action, which is an advocacy group for oil and gas production in Canada. Cody, thank you. Thanks, Mike, and thanks, Peter. Okay, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Peter, let me go to you first. Like When you hear Paulie of there talk about 
continuing demand for oil, 100 million barrels a day for the next 20 years. Is that true? Is that an accurate number? It's not an accurate number. And I, I want to start by saying that, you know, the numbers Pierre Polyever is quoting, if they were to come true, would lead to a catastrophic two and a half degree temperature rise on planet Earth. And I just do not believe that humanity will let that happen. It's funny because he quotes the International Energy Agency, but boy, is he ever cherry picking when it comes to this, because the International Energy Agency actually runs three scenarios. The one he's quoting is that no more climate action happens called the stated policy. We're doing what we do today. We don't introduce any new rules, regulations anywhere on Earth to reduce climate uh, pollution for the next 30 years. But the ones that say we're actually going to meet the commitments that we've made, the announced pledges scenario or even the net zero by 2050 scenario, say that global oil demand will plummet over the next 30 years um, into well below what Pierre Polyev is talking about. So, you know, he's kind of he's kind of fudging the numbers here. Okay, it's interesting. So he's projecting a massive continuing demand for oil and gas and Canada should get a piece of it. Cody, what do you think? There's a lot of forecasts for oil and gas demand, and all of them show that in 10, 20, 30 years from now, we're still going to be using it. So we could debate the numbers, but as long as the world is using Canadian, uh, uh, using oil and gas, using forestry, using mining, using uh, electricity that we can export to the U.S., those resources should be produced in Canada. We should invest in our democracy, invest in our communities, invest in our responsibly produced supply. Now, let's quickly talk about Peter's forecast. Respectfully, Peter, you've been saying for more than a decade, oil will peak. We don't need it. We don't need Canada. And what's happened? Oil has gone up more than 10 million barrels a day since you and groups like yours started opposing Canadian pipelines. Gas demand has gone up. And who has benefited? The United States, Australia, Qatar, Nigeria, Russia, other producers that don't have the same focus on opportunities for Canadians. They don't have the same focus on human rights. They don't have the same focus on democracy and reducing emissions. And now let's talk about making a meaningful impact on reducing emissions today while we balance affordability for Canadian families. That's LNG. And that's letting our allies and trading partners diversify away from other countries that don't share our values to buying more oil and natural gas from Canada. That's a win-win-win. Okay, Peter, what do you say to that? Because this is going to be a big issue in in an election campaign in our country when we get around to one here. And you're going to hear this all the time from Polyev. We can continue oil and gas production here in Canada and we can make it clean. We can make it the clean oil and gas. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, just to be just to clarify, we've said that oil demand would peak in the mid 2020s. And that is the current forecast that 2026 oil demand is going to start heading downwards instead of up. Um we cannot produce, you know, Canadian oil and gas has some of the highest emissions anywhere in the world. Um, and and the production of these fossil fuels is the thing that's uh, fueling climate disasters all over the world. And so, you know, when they talk about carbon capture, the uh, International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change evaluated all of the different ways that we have to reduce emissions. And they found that carbon capture was both the most expensive and the least effective way to do it. Um, so we are throwing billions behind this fantasy, uh, which is essentially just a life preserver for the oil industry so they can rag the puck until they have a friendly government that lets them go ahead and keep polluting for decades to come. Oh, okay, Cody, what do you say to that? Because we heard Polyev hit that point as well in the clip we played there. He, he talked about carbon capture and storage, that we can keep pumping oil, but we somehow capture the carbon so it's not released. Is, that, is this possible? Like Peter t- calls it a fantasy. Is it real? 
the federal government, the liberal government, bought Trans Mountain because of a number of factors leading to obstruction and delays. That pipeline is almost complete, has huge support from Indigenous communities, helps Canada maximize the value of our resources. They've also supported LNG. We have broad and growing nonpartisan, bipartisan support from all Canadians for an all-of-the-above strategy, to be clear. We must advance wind and solar. We also must advance oil and natural gas and hydro and nuclear. And Peter's against most of those things I just mentioned, which is not pragmatic. We have seen Canadian oil and gas emissions. The Globe and Mail editorial board a couple weeks ago, a month ago, said that emissions peaked eight years ago and they've fallen, even though production's up. That's without major carbon capture. So if Peter wants to reduce emissions globally, he's talking about the global climate, global weather, global this, global that. Let's be honest. China and India are building coal power plants, record coal power production worldwide, also a record wind and solar, also a record oil and natural gas. So let's export LNG to reduce coal power. Let's invest more in carbon capture, which if if there's any chance carbon capture could reduce emissions, why would Peter be against it? It's okay, Peter, okay, P- Peter, quick response from you, then we'll fit a break in here. Go ahead. Yeah, it's an opportunity cost. We're spending tens of billions of dollars on the chosen technology of the oil industry when we know what we need to do is phase out fossil fuels, and we should be spending our money on that. Um, you know, we cannot, you know, pretend places like China right. are moving into electric vehicles. One in every three electric vehicles sold today in China is uh, vehicles is electric, and so you know, they are moving. They are moving off of fossil fuels faster than we are, and we need to get with the program in order to meet the demands of the 21st century economy. Okay, it's our fossil fuels debate. Full phone board, right to your calls. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. My point uh, is this: Norway, one of the leaders on this planet when it comes to environmentalism, is investing billions and billions of dollars in new oil and gas development. Peter, I don't know what you're smoking, but can you please tell me what it is? Because I'd like to live in an alternate universe like you do. Okay, let's, let's, be, let's be polite, okay? I, 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 do, I do insist that we be uh, respectful to each other. So I just remind you of that, Dev. Peter, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, let's be real here. Nobody's proposing new tar sand mines in Canada anymore. Tech Frontier had one that was proposed, and they pulled the plug because it doesn't make any sense you don't have oil over $100 a barrel. Um, you know, the existing projects are, are chugging along, and they can produce at a lower cost. They're going to keep doing this. But even if Pierre Polyev becomes prime minister, he can hope and pray as much as he wants, but the oil industry is not going to invest in something that doesn't make any sense. And so mm. this is kind Cody. of a moot point when it comes to oil production in Canada. It will decline over the next several decades because that is what the economics require. Cody, what do you say to that? There's recent reports showing that Canada, Canadian oil production is sustainable at much lower prices. Oil sands is one part of our energy mix, but only uh, uh, there's, a, there's a handful of mining projects. Most projects are uh, drilling operations that actually have a far lower land footprint than similar operations in the U.S. or elsewhere. You've also got natural gas, liquids, and oil production uh, offshore the Atlantic uh, Saskatchewan, you've got a little bit in Manitoba, Alberta, and BC. Peter wants to cherry pick a tar sands mine because that's what they protest. All mining has a mining footprint, and everything we do on planet Earth has an environmental impact. You have to also mine the ingredients that you require for wind, solar, and electric vehicles. So let's mine it in Canada. 
Let's support democracy, invest in our local and indigenous communities, generate revenues for Canadian social programs, and help the world diversify away from producers of those resources that don't share our values. Back to the phone calls, Keith in Surrey. Hi, Keith, go ahead. It seems a little disingenuous to term oil and gas uh, energy extraction as green in any form. But if we were to take a step back and actually determine what is the goal? Are we wanting to live on this planet for a really long time? Or are we wanting to maximize shareholder value in the near term? Fossil fuels do increase CO2 emissions, which increases the severity of storms, wildfires, and the billions and trillions of dollars that that's going to cost is going to way wash out any of this nonsense that we continue to talk about with Peter and Corey. Cody, what do you say to that? We need all of the above. Global population demand is gro- global population's growing. Global energy demand's growing. So Canada's got one of the cleanest electricity grids in the world. We have among the highest investment in clean technology, carbon capture and storage. We're sixth in the world for renewable energy production with hydro, wind, solar. Some of the largest projects in North but, America, in Alberta, and across the country. We need all of the above, and that's what the world is saying. Okay, but as Cody... As long as the world needs oil and gas, it's got to come from Canada. We're focused on reducing emissions. And by the way, like I said, emissions peaked eight years ago. But what do you say, Cody, let me ask you this. I know you're not, I know you're not a climate change denier, right? Like you're saying that fossil fuel emissions do cause climate change, right? So I know you're not a denier. So what do you say when Peter says, look... If Polyev is right, and we're going to have 30 years of escalating demand for oil, this is going to be catastrophic for the planet. Are, are you buying that? Do you agree with that? Well, the planet's going to have to look at mitigating. The planet's going to have to look at how do you help, you know, someone who lives in a developing country who doesn't have a home, who doesn't have clean cooking fuels. If you look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, poverty, reducing hunger, reducing disease, climate, environment, clean water. In a lot of these countries, they just want clean water. They're not as focused on some of these other things. So we have to think globally, as long as the world's using oil and gas, if you want to have maximum climate impact, climate action, then let's use the lowest emission barrel, and that's from Canada. You okay, want to Peter. coal power, that's from Canadian LNG. Peter, your response. Go ahead. The idea that people in the developing world need oil and gas to have clean water or alleviate poverty is absurd. We can do that with emissions-free technology, and we are doing it with emissions-free technology. Um, Substituting one fossil fuel for another is, is not a win. It's not better, and we have to find a way, and we will and are finding a way, to provide a good quality of life for everyone on this planet without fundamentally undermining the life support systems that provide that quality of life okay Um, because the number one thing that is kicking people down wherever people are trying to come up out of poverty is the climate disasters that are wreaking havoc all over the world right now. okay squeeze in one more call karen in surrey hi karen go ahead you got like 30 seconds here okay go ahead trudeau has not met one target imposing carbon tax on canadians it's a fake tax Pierre's going to get rid of it. He's going to introduce better ways to address the climate issues. He's not a climate denier, like Peters likes to say. He agrees climate is an issue, but the carbon tax is not the solution. Cleaner approaches is, and that's the way it is. Okay, Karen, thank you for the call. Okay, guys, we're 
as usual, the time flies by when you're when you're on. So you get 30 seconds each to sum up. Peter, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives have no plan to deal with climate change. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing it in the next election because I don't think you can do it without a carbon tax in any other ways that they're proposing. So, you know, the world needs to get off of fossil fuels. We know it. And the sooner we do, the more lives we can save. Okay. So at the end of the day, that's what we need to do. Cody, 30 seconds to you. Go ahead. I, I believe BC's had a carbon tax for a long time and emissions have continued to go up. So I don't know if that it's gone down. by itself is going to necessarily be the cure-all. But, you know, we do have to look at investing in technology. We do have to remember global emissions, not national, not local. So what's our maximum impact globally while we balance affordability and economic okay. opportunities for Canadian families? Canadian natural gas, Canadian clean technology, small modular reactors, developing Thanks, wind guys. and solar at home, hydro, all of the above. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.